Smartcast. You are listening to a Mint production brought to you by HD Smartcast. Hello, welcome to our podcast, The Signal and the Noise, that will attempt to give you a peek into the inner workings of Mint's long story. This is Sunit, and I am Ajay, and we are both editors with Mint. Every week either one of us will attempt to walk you through the most defining development in the world of business, politics or technology. Let's dive in. Hi, this is Sunit and my guest on the Signal and the Noise is a young man of Indian origin who's done yeoman's work in demystifying the coronavirus. Anirban Mahapatra is an assistant director and publisher at the American Chemical Society. He has been involved in scientific publishing for over two decades. He's the author of a new book brought out by Penguin called COVID-19: Separating Fact from Fiction. Sometime in April 2020, I got a message from our contributor Vivek Call that I must check out the Twitter timeline of a science writer who was expressing a desire to pen a long story. Would I be interested? Of course I would be. Anirban wanted to write on the unnatural fears around coronavirus being spread by surfaces. At Mint and other papers we were facing this fear sales had fallen as people were scared to buy papers. This was of great interest. Anirban starting with that piece wrote four superlative pieces for us. I'm reading out the headlines to give you a sense of the journey of the virus. His first piece was the coronavirus and surface tension in April 2020. Then there was inside the race to crack the vaccine in May 2020. The beginning of the end of the pandemic was his third piece in November 2020. And finally, how India can fight vaccine hesitancy in February 2021. So this book which by all indications is a measured and non-judgmental look at the virus and its fallout to discuss this and more we speak to anirban let's see what he has to say hi anirban welcome to the signal and the noise hi sunit thank you for having me on your show i'm very happy to be here so you know i just uh, was leafing through your the copy of your book separating fact from fiction it's been brought out uh, by penguin it's about covid-19 and uh, while i'm still going through it it's a measured non-judgmental look at the virus and its fallout so we are keen to find out more from you about that but before i start and go deeper into the vaccine and the, the virus uh i think i read our listeners would want to know how did you get involved with the publishing industry and scientific publishing because i remember the first few articles i read of yours online when i searched for you uh, were uh, very good film reviews and uh, in the indian express and uh, i think you have uh, an eye for satyajit ray's films So from there to obviously that's your hobby, but an interest. But how have you got into the publishing industry? Yeah, it's a very interesting question. Sometimes I I go to uh, career fairs and also some universities. I've also traveled to India quite a bit before the pandemic. I was traveling two or three times a year and visiting a lot of uh, India's institutions to talk about publishing. So I I didn't know that these careers actually existed. I completed my PhD at Ohio State University in microbiology and I was looking to go down the traditional scientific career path of of pursuing research and then setting up my lab. 
But I enjoyed uh, reading more about the science in various different areas and writing about it. And I wanted to be a part of the, the peer review aspect of, of scientific publishing. So because uh, scientists, they submit their research and then it goes to scientific journals. And then uh, it's a little bit of a black box to people outside of, of science, but there's a whole process of going through peer review and then scientific editors look at it and it gets published online. So I wanted to be a part of that process. And I started, uh, it's been uh, nearly 14 years now that I've been a part of that. But you're absolutely spot on that I was, uh, I kept that pretty separate from everything that I was doing um, in terms of writing as a hobby. I was writing a lot about um, different things that, um, that piqued my interest, such as uh, films, art, travel. And I had written a few pieces for the Indian Express. But I think the last year when the pandemic started, at that point, I felt that I had an obligation to shift a little bit and to use some of my training, not only in science, but in science communication, to be able to make uh, information about the pandemic as it was coming, um, uh, as it was coming online, uh, more accessible to people who knew me. And so that's how I shifted from writing from, uh, from, from science to writing as a hobby to scientific communication during the pandemic. Yeah, I think that's what they call a renaissance man from Satyajit <laughs> Ray to, uh, to the virus. And No, good. And I think the book comes out in a, at a very interesting time uh, as our, uh, you know, your contribution to Mint over the, over the last uh, eight, ten months has shown us there's a lot of hesitancy, there's a lot of myths and... Uh, and there are a lot of fears about the pandemic and the virus, which you have sought to uh, tackle dispassionately. So, you know, instead of following the usual format of asking you about your book, I'm going to flip it a bit and say, and ask you, what don't we know at this stage about the virus? I, I could, how much time do you have? <laughs> we could go on for quite a bit. Um, I do want to, first of all, thank you and Mint for, for working with me as we wrote these pieces over the last year. Um, I think uh, the pieces turned out quite well. I'm quite proud of the fact that that the information in those pieces has held up uh, over uh, over time. We worked together uh, on writing about vaccines. First, uh, I think last year in May, uh, we mentioned that the vaccines were coming. Then in November, we said the vaccines are here. Just wait a little bit more. And as as you mentioned earlier this year, um, we wrote a piece about um, about vaccine hesitancy. Um, in terms of what we don't know, I think the, the, the biggest unknown for me is, um, why certain people are susceptible and why others aren't. And this is sort of when the pandemic started, uh, exactly one year ago, we took the approach by we, I mean, everyone in the world took the approach that everyone was equally susceptible. And this was like people in India, people in the US, and there were all these epidemiological studies, mainly some of the ones that came from Imperial College MRC that said that there would be millions of people who would die if this pandemic was unchecked. And so India and uh, 150 countries went into some form of a lockdown. And I talk about this a little in my book. Um, but a lot of these countries actually eased the lockdown before con completely controlling the cases. And so in India, we saw a spike in September uh, and it started to go down in October. 
Now, there are a lot of theories as to why uh, that spike occurred and why it, it started to go down. None of these have been scientifically substantiated uh, to the extent that we would want to um, know that. So there is something either environmental or immunological about India or about Indians that made it less severe, both in terms of infections and both in terms of lethality than other parts of the world, um, namely Europe and, and North America and the United States, where I, where I currently live, where it's been absolutely devastating. So I think mm. that is a huge unknown. Uh, one of the theories initially was that even with the SARS, uh, we had Indians had kind of not really been affected and perhaps a kind of immune system. Some people even suggested that ability to cope with other forms of illnesses and our immune systems were better and therefore we could deal with anything, we and you know, Indians. Uh, that yeah. initially caused a, a big, uh, you know, it was very controversial and seen. But finally, you think that has turned out true? I think it is plausible. Now, whether or not it is true is one of the open questions. I think for six months to a year, we may we may find that out. But as you see it, and the reason I say that it is plausible is that we see that um, the, the susceptibility to infection and to severe outcomes of COVID-19 disease are variable. And I mentioned this in the book as well. And we know that children are less susceptible to infection, less susceptible to severe outcomes, hospitalization, and death. And this was one of the things that we knew a year ago. And one of the reasons postulated for that is that children are uh, prone to a number of coronavirus-caused colds. Not, not this coronavirus, but there are also other coronaviruses that cause common colds. And so they might have had some immunity from other infections. And so I think if we extend that out, we can see that, it, and it's not just India. I, I want to point that out as well. If you look at Bangladesh or Vietnam or Singapore, and, and I wrote this in the book as an open question, is that why in, in Singapore, for example, the death rate has been so, so low. I mean, it was in, a lot of it happened in migrant dormitories where people were of Indian origin. And at that point, we could see that the death rate was very low in that part of the world compared to uh, at the same time, like Italy or or um, or the United States or Spain or Germany or other parts of the world like that. So I do think it is plausible. Now, whether or not that is one of the main cases um, is yet to be seen. And it could be a multiplicity of factors as well. Another obviously is is demographically we're younger than, than many other countries. Right. So yes, definitely. I think that deserves uh, further examination. So this brings us to the the severity of India's lockdown. And uh, so how do you place that now? How do you see that now? Again, this is sort of, a, this is a very good question. And I think everyone has their own opinion about it. Uh, they may agree with me. They may disagree with me. I am trying to go back to what we knew in March when that lockdown was instituted. And at that time in the fog of war um, sort of situation where there wasn't enough information to make other judgments uh, and epidemiologists across the world were saying that we do need to halt this virus. We do need to institute some measures. Uh, I think the lockdown at that moment was uh, the right move. Now, in hindsight, history may not judge it. Uh, kindly based on a number of other aspects of it 
with respect to its implementation and the economic fallout and things like that. But I do want to point out that this was the scientific consensus at the time. And it's sort of like uh, you have an enemy, you don't know much about the enemy. So it's better to overreact and then uh, have less matched casualties than to underreact and then be taken completely unprepared, uh, which I think we were. And um, I will also say positively that I was very happy to see in our budget that we have um, more funds now for surveillance because, uh, as I also mentioned in my book, uh, we will see more pandemics in the future. I think this one took us by surprise, but they will continue to happen. Right. I think one thing, just staying with India for a bit, uh, I think one thing that observers have pointed out is that it appears to be largely an urban phenomenon. And so, of course, the return of an estimated 10 million migrants to villages may not have fully spread the virus. Though, of course, uh, reporting of uh, COVID cases in, the, in different parts of the country has been poor. So the very nature of it being an urban phenomenon, how does that tie up with other geographies and say specifically in India's case? That is a very good question. And I think there are three possible reasons for this. One that you allude to is the surveillance in, in rural areas is quite poor. Um, I mean, in, uh, compared to cities, the primary healthcare centers and then in villages, uh, the, the ability to test, the ability to actually pin down and say that this is a COVID positive case or the outcomes have resulted from COVID is not the same as in urban areas. So I think that is definitely one aspect of it. The second is in urban areas, there is definitely more crowding, more spending time indoors. And this is why uh, we saw uh, a lot of the peaks in Western countries and then in the US in the winter months. Because in Western countries, um, people tend to spend a lot of time indoors in air conditioning with, with less ventilation. And uh, although ventilation is better in India, I, I think that is one of the reasons. The crowding factor is the second. And then the third is is uh, something that uh, some people are looking at right now, and that is the network effects of, of people in cities and versus the people in rural areas. And it, there isn't sort of this 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 vast amount of mixing back and forth as as it uh, as it was initially thought. So I think there are a number of factors here, but you are absolutely right. Uh, these factors all play into why it is mostly a, an urban phenomenon in India. Right. And then, I'm going to just focus on one of the things you mentioned right now, air conditioning. Uh, of course, you know uh, what an Indian summer can be like. And uh, so all of us, you know, right now we are operating out of homes, but when we go back to our offices, we will operate in air-conditioned offices. Uh, what has the pandemic taught us and how will it change air-conditioning in the immediate future? Yeah, this is one of the things that uh, I think last year there were a couple of papers uh, regarding um, people who had visited restaurants and, and where they were sitting. There was a very high level of detail as to where people were sitting, where the airflow was coming from, and, and how other people got infected. And I think in, in those cases, in indoor settings where, uh, where there isn't much circulation and the air is being recirculated over and over again, I think in those cases, if somebody is going to spend more than five or 10 minutes 
then they should ensure that they they are masked that whole time. So treat it just like you would in a uh, in another setting. And I would say that if the rooms are bigger and people are spread apart and they spend less time, then there is uh, less chance of this. But uh, that is one of the the, the reasons. Uh, at least experts believe that uh, Western countries have been adversely affected during, especially during the winter, where everyone spends most of their time indoors. Right. Now, which brings me to a, another variable of seasonality. There is a, in the in the predictions from an Indian point of view, the people I've spoken to, uh, uh, people who are in government and so on and so forth, talk about concerns around May uh, in the coastal areas, you know, when uh, infections are more prone to spreading, the rains are there. What yeah. does, what do you know about seasonality and uh, the vaccine and the virus? Yeah, so seasonality, some form of seasonality does exist for every single other coronavirus out there. So that was something that, that we were looking into early last year. At that point, when the virus, when this virus was, was relatively unknown, we were getting a lot of, everyone was getting these WhatsApp forwards. Okay. This is going to go away in the summer. Um, which didn't happen anywhere. There was, um, there was, we were talking about it in terms of waves, but it seemed like that the, the wave had not completely subsided. It had reduced a little bit, um, because of the summer months, um, in parts of the world. Uh, what we know is that the virus is prone to uh, degradation. It is a type of a virus known as an enveloped uh, respiratory RNA virus. So it is prone to degradation in conditions of light and in, in conditions of heat. So there is some aspect of seasonality to this. I think the fear around uh, the rainy weather and the wet uh, aspects of this is probably more around uh, crowding and just general susceptibility to corns that we tend to get uh, during that time. Because uh, heat, uh, humidity, and light are conditions that tend to degrade the virus in, in the environment. Okay. I asked this, obviously, not to seek a prediction from you because, you know, in this, as this virus has told us, has taught us, those predictions are kind of uh, dangerous. But... Uh, Having seen a second wave in Europe uh, and there's been talks of a mini second wave in India, what can we expect over the next six to eight months as far as reinfections go? I am a fairly optimistic person in general. Um, and I think with the rate of vaccination, well, you, you are absolutely right uh, to bring this point about like what will happen in the next six to eight months. I think right now there is a tussle right now, a tug of war between all of these variants that are coming up and the pace of vaccination. So those are the two variables right now. First of all, how, how fast these variants come up, how they spread and and what they do in terms of immunity and and how infectious they are. These are all these variants that have uh, right. that have risen in the in the last few months. But on the other hand, in our arsenal, we have vaccines and and vaccinations, as as I wrote for uh, Mint in a couple of pieces. And I think I'm I'm heartened to see that the pace of vaccinations has gone up. And in my family, my family members who are based in India, who are who are senior citizens, they were able to get vaccines, the, the first dose of vaccines this week. 
And so I think uh, from a global perspective, India will be doing quite well um, in six to eight months. And uh, as I also wrote, I think Diwali this year will be much, much better than Diwali last year. Um, okay. From a global perspective, I think when I look at other parts of the world, I uh, have a little bit of of caution and worry with respect to uh, South America and Africa. I mean, Africa has more than a billion people. It's the second largest continent in the world, but they have very few vaccines. So how it will play out in Africa is unknown. And and in terms of Latin America, there is this variant that uh, arose in Brazil. And Brazil is now one of the epicenters of this. So those two parts of the world, major geographic regions, um, are, I think, in it for the long haul and might suffer worse consequences. Coming to people who have recovered from the virus, or often reporting distressing symptoms like uh, fatigue, brain fog, and so on and so forth, uh, what you have called the long tail of yeah. uh, effect. Now, uh, uh, and of course, there's talk about uh, decreased longevity and so on and so forth. What do you have to say about this for the people who have recovered? What does science tell us or what do we know? Yeah, about? Uh, uh, this is a very good question. And and it, it, this is also one of the, we talked about in your earlier question, you you asked me about like one of the open questions. Um, right. This is definitely one of the open questions right now is why there seems to be such a wide spectrum of outcomes, not just in, in people uh, who suffer the disease, but after even the virus has been cleared. Because this is, we thought initially this was a respiratory virus. And then we found out that it infects various other parts of the body. Um, uh, some people have loss of smell, some people have brain fog, uh, lethargy, inability to remember things. And this proceeds like even months uh, after for, I should point out, this is a minority of people, uh, anywhere from, depending on the survey, anywhere from 10 to 15% of people. But for these people, it can last for about uh, three or four months. And nobody really knows why this is happening and how this this is going to play out when we examine uh, millions of people who have been infected. But in the United States, there has been more funding this year to study this uh, this long COVID aspect of post-infection disorders and and, uh, and symptoms. So um, on the positive side, though, we do know also more about uh, immunity post-infection. And it does seem like uh, most people who have had uh, symptoms of COVID will have antibodies and T-cells that will offer some level of immunity um, at least for six to eight months. Okay. In your book, you also refer to damage the pandemic has caused to society. What would you want to say about that? Yeah, I mean, we are only just coming to grips with the 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 the, the massive damage that has happened, and I'm sure we will cover a lot of the the economic fallout and the recovery in in detail in the next coming months and years. But the in terms of the negative aspects, uh, we clearly saw that some people were were more adversely affected than others. And it, it depends on which part of the economy uh, they belong to. Uh, someone such as myself, I mean, I could work from home. I had the infrastructure, so I was in a position of privilege. But there are also other people who are so-called essential workers 
who are often disadvantaged in many parts of the world. I mean, who kept society functioning, but they were also more prone to disease. We also found that uh, internet, I mean, is is pretty much now a basic service. I mean, mm. and if it's not provided everywhere, then some of these things to work from home, uh, join in online meetings, uh, even like uh, participating in classes is not possible. And so there is a wide gulf between those that have access and reliable access to broadband and, and those do, who don't. And so... I think that's a piece of it that we will see uh, play out. Another is that uh, people stopped going to uh, doctors for routine checkups. And while a telemedicine approach is useful for some things, uh, vaccinations of common diseases as in, that occur in children decline. So we may see a rise in a number of preventable diseases. We're very close to eradicating polio. Let's see what happens there. Uh, and then measles is expected to rise as well. Uh, and, and then I think the just the whole shape of how people interact in cities may also change. Uh, people always went to urban areas, and and there were there was all this 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 uh, secondary uh, or or all these other uh, services that were built around people moving into cities and eating out and and using all the services. And if people now go to uh, work from satellite areas, then the whole shape of of cities and economies uh, might change. I think what is also a little bit harder to predict right now is the the effect of the the what I call the mental pandemic, the mental health pandemic. The biological pandemic will end, uh, but the mental health uh, fallout of this, with respect to anxiety, depression, uh, these things, I think we will see a spike in for uh, for the foreseeable future. So yes, there are definitely other. Uh, effects on society and on the economy that we have to be on the lookout for. Great, uh, Anirban. That was uh, extremely informative and uh, as always. Uh, as a parting shot, uh, any words of advice for listeners of this podcast? COVID pandemic related or general advice? You can even suggest a Satyajit Ray film for them to watch. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. I would just say just uh, stay positive and if you can get the vaccine, don't hesitate. Just get it. It will give you peace of mind. Um, I know a lot of people, uh, at least I am going through the motions and convincing even some of my own family members that they should take the vaccine, even if they feel that the risk of getting infected is low, because uh, once they have those two vaccinations, uh, once they have those two vaccines uh, taken, then they can start to think about going back to uh, normal. And, and how the world uh, turns out in this new normal is going to be something that we, we can all look forward to, I think. Right. Thanks a lot, Anirban. Thank you so much. You have been listening to The Signal and the Noise. We would love to hear from you. Reach out to us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram on at HTSmartCast. Or you can also reach out to us personally at Sunit Arora and at AJ Axiom. To listen to more such interesting podcasts, do log on to HTSmartCast.com. We'll be back next week with a new story, another fresh voice, or a unique take on the world. Do stay well until then. And keep supporting good journalism. This was a Mint production brought to you by HD Smartcast. HD Smartcast.